Coming to you from the land of nightmarish sound quality, this is the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm your host, uh, Jake Clark, and I am joined uh, to begin the show by Vivian Gosselin, uh, the presenter of the Haida Gwaii uh, exhibit at the oh, sorry, <laughs> Museum of Vancouver. Yes, hi, Jake. I'm so glad to be here. It's good to have you. Oh, uh, I really find time to forget that. Uh, we are broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. Thought that that would be relevant. We, we, well that's done. a disclaimer at the beginning of every show. And this, that is especially relevant now because this show ties in, it's described as tradition meets innovation yeah. for the artwork of the Haida people as well as uh, Correct. Yeah, so First it, Nations. And the title is Haida Now, and we opened uh, two weeks ago. I'm very excited um, about the show. Uh, we've worked uh, two years on the project, uh, and it was uh, guest curated by Kuiwa Jones, um, who's Haida, and has been an amazing, uh, what I would call, a cultural translator or, or uh, cultural bridger, and has been able to connect us with um, several members of the Haida community here in, in uh, Greater Vancouver and on Haida Gwaii as well to help us interpret our vast collection of um, material culture from the Haida culture uh, that were made by, by Haida uh, from like thousands of years old to uh, current pieces. What are some of the pieces? What's an example of yeah. the, uh, the art being presented? Well, so we have over 400 um, uh, items and they uh, range from um, jewelry to uh, uh, bowls that are uh, over 4,000 years old to uh, weavings made out of uh, spruce roots. Um, and uh, petticoats made out of uh, inner uh, cedar bark. Yeah. So yeah, so a wide range. And and again, and it goes. Uh, there's recent acquisitions that were made, uh, you know, a few months ago, uh, and some that were uh, that happened uh, early in um, the Museum of Vancouver's beginning in the um, 1890s. Excellent, and that's so that's quite a span, and that's quite a quite a cultural significance mm -hmm. to everything involved, and that's it's interesting because this thing it's it's an undercurrent that's always been it's always been there. It's part of the tradition, the culture of Vancouver as well as Canada as a whole. Oh, so um, so actually, the the uh, exhibition makes the case that uh, the traditional uh, territories of of the Haida is on Haida Gwaii, um, but there's uh, they consider. I mean, there's uh, been some uh, survey that that uh, kind of indicates that there's a one out of five Haida who lives in the Greater Vancouver. So we make the case that um, the Haida community here in the urban Haida are, are very important, have done lots of contributions, but they work and have lived on the unceded territories of, of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. So that is actually the entry point of the exhibition where we say, well, there's been this ongoing, enduring relationship um, between the Haida and people living here. Um, because there's, there, are, there is confusion. Like uh, tourists, people who are not from here, often see um, Haida art, like public art, and think this was uh, something that was always here. And whereas um, 
public art or recent contributions made by Haida artists. So there's there's a bit of that, like we're kind of kind of setting the the, the stage by contextualizing uh, and at the same time um, relying heavily on the uh, the uh, important Haida community to help us make sense of that very important collection because this is the first time that we show the collection in its entirety and it is um, the first time as well that it's been interpreted by a multitude of uh, Haida perspectives. And that's interesting, especially considering this, it's, it's a smaller part of the whole collection, but the contemporary perspective. Mm -hmm. How would you say that engages with things like with like technology, like the the global art world? That is sort well, okay. So when we talk about innovations, it's interesting that um, uh, innovation has always existed. Changes, continuing changes, is part of of, of life. Uh, I think people tend to consider innovation as like you know new media and technologies, but in the arts, um, it's it's the way you create the bowl. Uh, what are the technologies that are connected? to this and how have they been refined and how have they evolved. For example, um, pre-colonization, uh, uh, it was very important to um, to portray, uh, indicate your status and your clan affiliation uh, through tattooing. And so it, there was lots of tattoos that have been, and, and we can see it in early photographies. And with the colonial imposition and bans that were happening, like, uh, for example, a potlatch ban, which uh, kind of preven prevented um, uh, North, Northwest Coast uh, indigenous cultures to um, to celebrate this this very important kind of ceremonies that was part and an integral part of ec ec uh, economics and and um, uh, and in the process, uh, the potlatch ban prevented, for example, the um, the tattooing. What happened is, uh, as a, it was so important that what the Haida people did is they converted or um, and morph uh, their art into the, the art of bracelets. So silver bracelet became a huge thing on the Northwest Coast. It became a trade item with non-indigenous, non-Haida people, and at the same time, it was a way, indirect way, to pursue. Um, the art of of showing on your body who you were. So there's that innovation that took place in the you know in the 1880s because of of colonial uh, restrictions, if you want. So there's that kind of innovation that we wanted to show, and then and there's uh, this recent kind of um, popularization of tattooing. Uh, that just you know resurged um, here in the Lower Mainland, but that there's the um, Haida people that that um, are only, for example, uh, tattooing people from from the Haida community, and and so that there's like a lot lots of meaning behind um, that practice. So we we show that timelines like from tattooing to like bracelets to back, going back to both bracelets and tattooing and um, and so we see that and you know as a form of innovation through for for reasons of resilience and um, and trying to survive and and uh, thrive despite uh, what happened during those those intense years of uh, colonization that innovation always reflects tradition well there's there's I there's um within uh, tradition, uh, and I think we always feel that uh, that tension. There's uh, people that will want to be like hardcore. We just copy what's you know what has been done, and others that will want within that uh, to push the envelope 
And then there's that tension. And within that, uh, I think that's where you see new practices exploring. I think there's a need for both, in fact, uh, to see interesting things happens. If not, there's no more, if you want, baselines or references, right, if people forget what we've done. So it, I think it's a, a nice interplay between memory and, and trying to uh, reflect the reality that surrounds you. And because those realities constantly change, then you're constantly reinterpreting um, yourself. How do you say this reality affects those who aren't really well versed in this, who aren't really well aware of the issues or about Haida culture? So you're, you're asking how people engage with yeah. those kinds of discourses in the exhibition. I think you can, you can decide to look at um, these amazing belongings and, and look at the aesthetic uh, from an aesthetic point of view. And you can also, and I mean, we put lots of context. There's text, um, uh, you know, interviews that we've done with knowledge holders, and we try to capture like the, like the, the ex excerpts that are particularly telling so that it seems like someone is talking to you as opposed to just reading someone who's lecturing you about the history of Haida in Vancouver. So I think people can engage, people can certainly relate to, um, you know, a self of an entity and wanting to represent it. At the same time, there is this, to me what's amazing is um, these objects, these bowls, these baskets that um, are, um, are are created design by design are sustainable, and I think there's lessons to be uh, learned by looking at the practice because uh, it was always like things were harvested on a need base, and um, and things would last. So the longevity of those pieces, like you know, a few weeks ago, I I go and buy a, a drill, it will last for a few months, if that, and then I can still use some of the tools that are a few thousand years old. So but into obsolescence. I know. So yeah, built-in obsolescence, exactly. So so when you look at um, the time that and the commitment that uh, is connected to, you know, from harvesting to uh, preparing to making, um, there's that sense of respect for nature and respect for the object uh, that we pass on from one generation to another. And that sort of generation, is that sort of generational uh, trajectory might be a good thing, sort of very important to the exhibition? Is that sort, does that sort of create a lot of the continuity there? Well, certainly there's um, the messaging, if you want, like the, 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 the exhibition is addressed like to people who know very little about indigenous art and culture and but also to um, Haida um, living in, in Vancouver and Haida Gwaii, um, these pieces, we have to realize, were in the storage, had not been seen for at least 100 years, and they've been seen as, as a corpus, if you want. Um, so connecting the dots, the way it's been done in this show has not been done yet. So I think that um, people will want to, yeah, we've started doing some tracking and seeing people spending a lot of time in the exhibition. So I think there is something for everyone, whether you, you know, you, you feel like you're, you're well-versed in indigenous culture. And if you're there to, um, to just be kind of in awe with, um, with the, the, the material culture, I think you'll, you'll have, a, you'll be in a good spot for, and be able to explore the, the exhibition that way. But certainly there's text and, and sounds and music to, um, to help you make sense 
of uh, of those. Uh, it's a very accessible books. exhibition about a very specific. We try thing. to so those uh, those texts are are you know we we show them to a, a range of, of readers so to get feedback if you know the, we don't want to be like academics, and at the same time there are some pretty uh, complex ideas that we want to share, but we break it down in a way that we think makes sense, and we reiterate things one way or another because we know that you know the exhibition visiting is not linear. You you go you you choose your path. So we're trying to say uh, often something that the messages overlap, but at the same time, I think it's not redundant because we say it differently in different contexts, and people tend to not read everything, which is a great thing. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. You've done some interesting exhibits. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you've done. Let's talk about the the. Oh God, we mentioned this. Uh, sex in the a sex talk in the city. Sex talk in the city. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. I was going to say sex in the gallery for a second, but that uh, would be a very enough. different. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, definitely about the same topic, and uh, that was a few years ago. We, um, you know, the idea with the Museum of Vancouver, the mandate is to. Um, understand the city from various perspectives and generate fresh understanding and, and really looking at urbanity is a critical concept and um, so certainly looking at how ideas about sexuality shape in the city was something of interest so we looked at how people learn about sex we learn and um, how um, laws actually in the city, bylaws, for example, um, you know, having to do, for example, with, with uh, sex trade, um, shape behavior. Um, and we looked at uh, the idea of pleasure. So it was pedagogy, pleasure, and politics around sex, so the three Ps. And we had the uh, um, various environments created for that. So a classroom, a bedroom, and then the streets were like those three kind of um, spaces where we talked about those ideas. And again, we had a vast range of, we always work with a lot of knowledge holders that know way more than the people at the museum know because they spend a lot of time thinking about that. So we had like sex trade workers, uh, sexologists, uh, poets who um, are invested in thinking about ideas of sexuality. um, And uh, yeah, like um, uh, ethnographers who uh, again talk about um, queer politics. So yeah, so it was just a a fun show and, and we keep coming at those topics so it's not like we're doing an exhibition or a series of programs and we never talk about it again because we feel that um, we invest with those partnership and we want to continue the conversation so not that long ago we did an exhibition so that was in 2016 an exhibition on um, collecting and and kind of the relationship between private collecting and and public collecting and uh, because people tend to think that private you know museum collections are very serious and uh, rigorous when whereas private collections can be more subjective and in fact public collections are kind of an amalgamation of private collections in 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 many many cases so we're looking at that migration but interviewed and worked with several interesting collectors, so people collecting Chinese Canadian menus because they understand more the history of food and um, and uh, diaspora um, history through uh, menus. Um, we had uh, this woman who uh, collected her father's drag queen costumes. So of course we had this really? whole, yeah, I know, this is a bit mind-bending. Um, uh, and that, actually- That's a pretty specific collection. Yes. Uh, it was uh, so interesting. We're talking about a group here, the Bovine, and the daughter of one of the Bovines um, had collected the collection. Of course, when growing up, she would have never seen her father perform. 
um, that group was very active in the 80s and the early 80s. And um, so again, that for us, it was a chance to, um, to again, get at the topic of sexuality and really normalize it and talk about healthy sexuality, but also how, um, how uh, it tells us about the, uh, the, the city, the kind of city that Vancouver was. So the bovines were critical in developing the uh, Loving Spoonful, which is a very important fundraiser here mm -hmm. for people living with AIDS. Uh, it was an opportunity to talk about family history and how it started to change in in the 80s. Um, she was, you know, this girl was not ostracized, even though her father was a drag queen. But I mean, uh, again, like it was a kind of an interesting um, topic, uh, but it was not. We didn't get at it like directly, like the sex talk in the city. It was kind of camouflaged under the 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 rubric of of let's look at how people collect. So we were very deliberate about the topic, uh, the, like the collections that we selected, and ended up uh, acquiring uh, the bovine costume for to our permanent collections. That's interesting. Yeah. The and all of these are sort of intended to create a dialogue, maybe, or the discussion around it. That that's a mm -hmm. very that's a very common intention. What's your experience with setting these up? What is your hope for Haida Gwaii? Like in, uh, in for the Haida scenario? Now exhibition? Yeah, for the Haida Now. Uh, so, no problem. Uh, so with the Haida Now exhibition, our hope is um, to, uh, well, to invite other indigenous communities to come to our collection storage and, the, and, and discover uh, what's in there uh, and have, uh, create platforms for indigenous communities to interpret their material culture and share their knowledge and um, and and really looking at different curatorial practice. And you know, not that long ago, you had a non-indigenous curators representing uh, indigenous cultures. And uh, and I'm not trying to like I'm not criticizing the you know, people who who did this uh, decades ago. But uh, since the early 90s, we've changed. Uh, but at the same time, the change is slow. Uh, but it's very important to rewrite in, um, the history uh, and of our collections and uh, to invite these indigenous uh, knowledge holders to um, kind of reclaim their material, material their their collections, in fact. So as much uh, intellectually as physically, because we're talking about repatriation quite often. So having these pieces, these important that material culture going back to um, their uh, source communities. All right, that's that's an, a very admirable aim, and I wish you the best of it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Um, so that was Vivian Gosselin for the Hide and Now exhibit, which you can see at the Museum of Vancouver, running till what date? Actually, for until May 2019. So okay, so you find that you can find the time in all likelihood. <laughs> no excuses, really. <laughs> it's like oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can see it. What you got the whole year booked up? Yes. Uh, you can uh, come back. Exactly. Okay. Right. And we have several programs as well. I'm excellent. Um, after this uh, PSA break, we're going to have a recorded uh, review of the uh, documentary 32 Pills by our correspondent Aaron Kenny. And then we're going to have uh, Aaron and Lua in to talk about a series of UBC theater features as well as Bar Mitzvah Boy and a brief shout out to the Fire Hall Chess. Fire Hall. That's all, folks. Fire Hall Theater. <laughs> The Chelsea Hotel is coming back to Vancouver. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about it. Okay. Um, see you momentarily. Cheers. Momentum. 
It's the annual end-of-year showcase. Come watch the UBC Ballet Club competitive and recreational teams perform alongside guest performances from other UBC dance clubs on Saturday, March 31st at 6.30 p.m. in the South Great Hall of the Nest. Entry is only $5 for UBC students and $7 for everyone else. Each ticket comes with a free raffle ticket for sweet prizes. Additional raffle tickets can be bought separately, and all tickets can be purchased through one of our execs or at the door. See you there. Allow me to tell you about Unseated Airways. What's that? Isn't that some kind of indigenous radio show? It sure is. Tell me, are you down for decolonization? What? I certainly wish I could hear about indigenous issues, people, and events on the radio. You're in luck, because Unseated Airwaves talks about all these things and more every Monday morning at 11. Music, artists, and coverage of all the hot happenings in indigenous art and entertainment. On CITR 101.9 FM. Oh, wow. And they broadcast all this from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people? Find out for yourself, Monday mornings at 11, or find episodes online at citr.ca. Today we're joined in the studio by the Cedar Program Youth. Where you are at. Hey, I'm back for just a second, and because, well, I was not lying to you earlier, we do have the review of 32 Pills. Um, stay tuned for that, and then we shall talk with our correspondents about assorted UBC theater and non-UBC theater features. Yeah, like I said, less than a minute ago. Around a minute ago. Here's the review. An HBO Documentary Films production. Hope Lidoff's 32 Pills, My Sister's Suicide, asked the survivor's biggest question. Why? Why a beautiful, artistic, and beloved sister couldn't stand to be alive. Can I talk about your sister? I love my sister very much. She's probably the most important person to me. There is something unique about losing someone to suicide. It's like you always have a splinter. Sometimes you notice it and sometimes you don't, but the splinter's always there. Stuff was very important to Ruth. That's why she saved everything. I think if I can look at what was important to her, I could get some answers. The documentary follows Hope Lidoff's personal investigation into her sister Ruth's suicide. The investigation is orchestrated around the sifting through of Ruth's storage locker that had remained idle for six years an unopened locker that everyone in Hope's bereavement group has. Are you the first one to unpack her? I'm going to be the first one. Do you think that this is going to be helpful? You feel compelled to do I it? I feel compelled to do it. Clearing everything out? Yeah. As Hope arranges her sister's pill bottles, blankets her home and her sister's journals, and begins to doubt years of sobriety, the question of Hope's lingering sanity is as much at the forefront of this film as her sister Ruth's psychological journey. The film intertwines an investigative discovery of the sister's bizarre past and a personal testimony to the toll of documentation. Having a doubt attack. Resultantly, like Hope, the audience is led down a rabbit hole of introspection and analysis marked by Ruth's specter. Ruth Lidoff attempted suicide 20 times before 
She died in 2008 at 42 years of age. Her suicide was markedly strange, with 15 suicide notes, a sprinkling of gifts for her closest friends, and hundreds of rainbow markers surrounding her body. I remember all of the letters around. There were notes everywhere. And she tried to remember all the people she loved and left them presents. There were post-it notes on things saying what to do with them. The police officer said to me, I've never seen anything like this. Diagnosed with bipolar disorder, Ruth's emotional roller coaster couldn't have been more estranged from her persistent excellence at everything she did. Artistically, athletically, academically, she was the pinnacle of success. However, as Hope slowly works through her sister's journals, a clearer story of suffering becomes clear. In the film's most poignant moments, excerpts of Ruth's journals lift from the page. Drawings of the two sisters interwoven into a single pane commemorate not just her love for her sister, but the consuming insecurities that would ultimately take her life. For Ruth, love was a fragile endeavor, and one plagued by doubt. When I see her friends, they say, you know, your sister really loved you. And what I really want them to say is, your sister knew that you really loved her. The parents remain distant figures, and the sisters learn to lean on one another for support. It was this tight relationship that generates the guilt driving hope throughout the future. A guilt that forces her to open the storage locker to begin with. A guilt that leads to her return to heavy drinking after 16 years of sobriety and a guilt painfully translated to the camera lens. It's like she's with me all the time. The guilt that I feel is unbearable and I'm falling apart. Despite, or perhaps in spite of this toll, Hope works in the film's final stages to bring to life Ruth's dream, a floral photography exhibition at the Bellevue Hospital in New York planned by Ruth before her suicide. The exhibition marks a distinct shift in Hope's thinking as she turns from the deconstruction of her past to the construction of her future. While the parallel journey of Hope and Ruth sound intriguing conceptually, the documentarian's heavy-handed presence often distracts from the investigative components of the documentary that attracted audiences to begin with. The question of why that is ultimately at the heart of the documentary, remains underdeveloped. Hope's screen confessions do little to further the investigation. Her visual arrangements, such as the organization of Ruth's medication, simply seem futile. And ultimately, the viewer is left without having gained any significant insight into Ruth's motivations, which is, however frustratingly, the most important point of the film. There are some questions that simply cannot be answered and often answers that will never be good enough to explain away a suicide. About losing someone to suicide, it's not really something you're ever going to get over. It's a daily battle. It's like you always have a splinter in your hand. Sometimes you notice it and sometimes you don't, but the splinter's always there. You can't destroy yourself over it, but 
You can have the splinter and, and live. The splinter's not going to kill you. It should come as no surprise that Hope Lidoff's film has made a tremendous impact on survivors around the world. Her brave, unflinching investigation continues to contribute to an ongoing dialogue on suicide bereavement and understanding loss. Even in the post-film discussion mediated by Dr. Harry Kalinske at the Cinematheque, I was amazed to discover the film as a vehicle for individuals to share their experiences and questions about a range of issues deliberated in Lidoff's film. 32 Pills, My Sister's Suicide screened last Wednesday at the Cinematheque. It was part of the Frames of Mind initiative in partnership with the Institute of Mental Health here at UBC. Keep an eye out for the next screening in the series, The Work, scheduled for April 25th. I'm Aaron Kenny, and I hope to see you there. Well, that was uplifting stuff there, Aaron. <laughs> And for those unaware, I am joined by not one, but two of our correspondents. You already know Lua. And Aaron, I believe this is your on-air debut. You betcha. So, yeah, it must have been, So that was... Well, we're not going to recap. You already did the review, and it was a fantastic piece of production. I understand that both of you guys saw Festival Dionysia, though. We did. Now, I, I do want to preface this by saying I was in Festival Dionysia. Uh, you're aware of this, so I can't yes, really comment. <laughs> yeah, and say what you want. That will in no way, in no way, affect my, you know, your ability to work in this town again. <laughs> Jocularity, yes. Uh, but no, no, seriously. So I, I can't really comment on it, but you guys can. So go to. Mm-hmm. We have not conferred on this, by the way. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not being facetious. We really haven't. This was pretty spontaneous. That, yes, Go that is true, mm-hmm. what he said. Um, so, the festival was definitely interesting. It is amateur theater, but it was a, a really interesting opportunity to see some of the work that UBC students are putting in before they get the stage where they're really good. So, like in general for me, it probably wasn't the strongest pieces of theater I've ever seen in my life. But they definitely didn't keep me bored. Like, there wasn't a moment um, during the entire show where I was like, oh, I can't watch this anymore. So it was definitely interesting. And some of them were very um, innovative in their approaches. Hmm. Not, not that being innovative means necessarily that it worked. But it was definitely interesting to see something new. Yeah, yeah, no, and for sure. And I think that was definitely a highlight from it was... Um, a lot of experimentation that was going on there, so that was really exciting. Um, certainly in the, the opening one, Hot Pursuit, I know a lot of people were talking about that one. Uh, there was a lot of action going on, and it really set the pacing uh, for the evening, so that was really nice. Um, if and you can recap the productions, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if we can, do we want to go through those now? Yeah. yeah. Sure. So there were six different productions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So three intermission and three. Um, starting with Hot Pursuit which was about these four um, criminals running away from having just stealed money from a bank. Um, I don't remember the order anymore, so Aaron can yeah, help me yeah. out and there. Yeah, the and then next we had, so the night before, uh, the night before opening, um, which was uh, about a, um, some performers that were getting, getting ready for the oh, yes, big yes. opening of their show, and there were various uh, logistical problems getting in the way and some <laughs> acting one? egos. That one was very, 
very weird. Like I really have no other word to describe it. So it was uh, supposed to be a high school production and of Romeo and Juliet, but a new version of Romeo and Juliet. And I just didn't really get it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I thought it was I thought hilarious. That was really, yeah, it was quite amusing. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, it was very amusing. But there were some things about it that I was just like, I, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get your purpose with this one. Hmm. I, yeah, I, I, I don't like certainly experimenting with, uh, you know, different directions and in theater and I don't know is certainly it, it coined with a lot of the productions the meta meta theater that was going on. anyway moving right along here uh we have red wine solitaire that was next that was my absolute favorite absolute favorite of the night um it was so sweet so it was about two frat boys I'm get like I guess you could describe them frat boys or like these two guys that um share a house and it starts off with this guy kind of talking to the mirror and being like, how can I describe what love is? As if he's like practicing his confession to his loved one. And then his friend comes in and he's like, ooh, who are you doing that for? And that kind of stuff. And it's like this teasing. But then they, you kind of like get it that halfway through that they are kind of like into each other. And I just go like, oh my God, that's so cute. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm all, all for LGBT plus um, representation on theater. I get that we like it doesn't happen that often and i love these love stories well certainly so in that cute. one what really stood out was the choreography like it was definitely it was like a it's like a dance that was going on here uh between the two of them and that was yeah that was really impressive next we have uh jared lee detective of the near future i'm told that jake's slightly familiar with this one yeah yeah i know yeah i might have that said that one kind of stuck with me i don't know why yeah, that, that that was the one I was in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he was the main character. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, that is that's weird for me. By the way, as as you've known, like I've played weird widget villain roles. Like I think the the like I started the year playing Rasputin in a musical. <laughs> that's a weird trajectory to have. Yeah, I know. So basically, this one was about this um, tech guy that has this these goals kind of like this idea of grandeur he wants to be more than what he is and he tries to solve this case that no one can crack and it ends up being very strange in the end how it's like summarized like how does it the like the actual end how it concludes is just it felt a little weird for me, especially putting so much importance to Facebook because he has to share something in Facebook so that he can release a hostage. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it yeah. was very entertaining. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think the the strength of that was when sometimes the the lights would uh, the lights would, uh, dimmed for a second and you just got to uh, look at the desk uh, as Jake was kind of fiddling around there and. You really got uh, got a look at like just a little portrait of this character there, and I think that was where it really stood out. So yeah, yeah. Um, going off that is to me it was probably like the best parts were when you got to go into the mind of the character and you see that he has this idea of himself like oh I'm a, this great detective and I'm this awesome person and I'm doing this and this and this and he's narrating a movie and what I liked that 
I thought was kind of unconventional is that although we feel that there is a break from what's going on in the scene, um, the actors that are with him in the scene just go, um, excuse me, who are you talking to? So you get this feeling that it's like, okay, this is just a very weird person because he's not doing it in his mind. He's actually doing it inside whatever he's like the moment is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have uh, classes canceled. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay okay i can speak out yeah so those was this is definitely i think one of the more uh abstract of the of the productions that were that were featured there uh there's some some really good acting in that one um some very emotional banter that was back and forth discussing uh you know different types of purgatory in our existence so i think that was that was very interesting it was interesting but to me it was also one of the ones i just didn't get and i don't think it was i think the actors were really good actually and i was like empathizing with them so much but i just didn't get the purpose of the play or what it was trying to convey because if it was this idea of purgatory and life and death maybe there could have been more clarity on like maybe dress or like costumes and that kind of stuff or makeup maybe because it did feel a little bit too ambiguous at points especially the ending where it's again that's one of my issues with several of the plays of that night is that the endings felt like an easy way out like as if oh this is like the easiest way to end it so I'm just going to end it here instead of like having actually well thought out um finale mm. yeah and then last but not least we have uh, night school yeah very interesting one yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah as a you know as a as a socialist i was very pleased to see this one uh lots of <laughs> why don't you explain <laughs> to them what it's about <laughs> yeah so so this particular night school is um is not about garbage ecology but actually a uh secret uh, communist unit uh, that is that is operating um, behind the school's back, and the teacher is trying to manipulate these students into his uh, communist agenda. And along comes a, an old uh, grandmother that wants to be in the original class um, and is not aware of these of this conniving plot. And then slowly, kind of uh, uh, interweaves herself into that as well. So, yeah. That was a lot of fun, that one. That was a lot of fun. But again, I have the issue with the endings. Um, it felt just, it built this great momentum. At the start of it was amazing. I was like, wow, this is going to be great. And as the play went on, it was it kind of just dropped the energy. And then it tried to peak in the end. And for me, it didn't work. Mm. I think in general, the festival was very interesting. Um, it's definitely something that I'll think about doing next year, like going again next year to watch it because it's it's a different type of theater for sure. It's like very short uh, plays. Each of one of them are about 15 minutes each, more or less. Yeah, 15, they're, they're, all, they're all 20 minutes, Kat. Oh, okay. around, yeah. around yeah. 20 minutes, yeah. usually less. Yeah, yeah so it's... it's it's, a, it, it's very entertaining, especially because of this quick pace. Mm. So you're never really bored or out of things to talk about. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And for uh, for $10, it's like a, it's an awesome evening where you get to 
really uh, see different uh, UBC theater talents, uh, you know, flexing their flexing their muscles and just experimenting out with things. So yeah, no, I think it's a very exciting opportunity. All right, excellent. Glad you guys had a time. I notice I and uh, before we jump into the Crucible, Bar Mitzvah Boy, and uh, um, Chelsea Hotel, let's just take a, our second quick PSA break. The BC government now covers medications that could reduce your chances of contracting HIV by 90%. PREP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis and is a preventative measure that HIV negative folks can take to reduce their risk of becoming positive. Health Initiative for Men suggests that if you have had sex with a partner with HIV, have had a recent STI, have multiple sexual partners, have a history of inconsistent or no condom use, are currently involved in sex work, or have had repeated courses of post-exposure prophylaxis, then you might want to think about looking into PREP measures. CATR and Discorder are not medical professionals. Please refer to your doctor for more information. Witchcraft is all about. I think you'd best go down and deny it yourself. The parlor's packed with people, sir. I'll sit with her. And what shall I say to them? That my daughter and my niece I discover dancing like heathen in the forest? Uncle, we did dance. Let you tell them I confessed it and I'll be whipped if I must be. But they're speaking of witchcraft. UBC Theatre and Film presents The Crucible by Pulitzer Prize winner Arthur Miller. Join us March 15th to 31st for the last play of the season at the Frederick Wood Theatre. Theaterfilm.ubc.ca So we actually just, so we saw The Crucible last Wednesday. Yes, right after the show. And you also riffed it in real time. <laughs> yes, I do that. Um. I, 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 I do want to say this. If anyone out there has the chance to see a show with Lua, I highly recommend <laughs> it. It's, 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 it's a delight. I always, I don't know. I have too many comments in me to not comment it during the things. Like, I do it with movies as well. And I try to be as quiet as possible. But sometimes... That attempt was not successful. <laughs> I, I, there was a point... Uh, Dramatic moment where I distinctly heard, "Bitch, what?" <laughs> <laughs> it was I, 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 I almost like I, I remember I was just like, just trying not to laugh so hard. It was it was perfect timing for like MST3K style riffing. I think that's why I like um predict like screenings of like Rocky Horror and that kind of stuff so much because I can talk as much as I want and nobody's gonna judge me. Good point. The Room, too, I imagine. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I, as soon as I get the time on. Well, totally unrelated to what you can <laughs> yeah. do is save The Room. Actually, did they, they already done that? They've probably already done that. Well, The Rio Theater's got a pretty good relationship with The Room. Look it up. Yeah. The Crucible. The Crucible. Now, uh, you have mixed opinions on it. Right? I do. Accurate. This production by UBC Theater uh, is—it's—it it's really is pretty much the entire BFA. It's a lot, fairly large cast, um, including you have Heidi DeMeo as Abigail Williams. You have uh, Aiden Wright, who we've interviewed as—excuse um, me—as uh, as Pryor. As Pryor? No, no. 
Proctor. Proctor. John Proctor. Um, you've got Jed Weiss as Reverend Hale. Uh, and you've got, actually, you got Frank Zotter as Danforth, which is pretty... Tr- Danforth was... He he came in in the second act. He was the the judge. Oh, yeah. He was so good. And his, it was, it was kind of interesting. The performances in this, I thought, were generally very good. You, you disagree with me on this. No, it's not that I disagree. Is that I feel that some... Some of the casting wasn't the best. For example, I don't remember the name now, but he was the um, the other minister that came in that wasn't the original minister. That's Jed. That's that's Reverend Hale. Yeah, him. Um, I don't know. He felt he was a good actor, and I could see that, but he just felt off for the role of a reverend. Hmm. I've I I've compared him very frequently to Jason Siegel, and that might that 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 sort of sketches the image there. Yeah, um, and after you Pretty like cool. yeah you you said that to me during intermission, and I, and I, at the moment I was like yes that's why I can't see him as Reverend because he reminds me of this like dad figure you know. But wouldn't you want to see Jason Siegel hunt witches? Not not as the Reverend, maybe as a proctor. Hmm, interesting. But um. And uh, like I, uh, I, I thought that was fine. There was um, um, Heidi's performance as as Abigail is um, like Abigail's a character who has this really weirdly like a lot of these really uncomfortable sexual moments. Like she makes advances on Proctor because of the relationship with Proctor. Um, when <clears throat> excuse me, when uh, Miss Nelson was in here last week, like she pointed out that that dynamic is interesting and they tried to highlight that and there's also a very sexual element to when she has the paroxysms of witchcraft um and then you know starts recanting her sins and then i i think i made this joke to you is that it seems like a pretty literal come to jesus moment um yeah yeah it was kind of mildly funny <laughs> yeah. at that point as well um and that was that that worked though it's this sort of uncanny element to to the character but not not like as it doesn't really demonize her. You know, it's, it's 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 creepy, but it's creepy in a way people can be creepy. Like, yeah, I agree. Um, but at the same time, I I didn't feel it towards the end. But like the first scene, okay. So the, this is the first time I've seen the Crucible, and the first time I've mm-hmm. heard about the Crucible. Um, like in general, I have read and like worked with Death of a Salesman, but this was my like my first introduction to the crucible Mm. so like i went in not really knowing what to expect or what to like what was going to go on and i at first didn't really understand the relationship abigail had to everything else especially because um heidi is that her name heidi heidi's portrayal feels very modern in comparison to everyone else's portrayal Mm. everything else feels very dated except for her like um, she feels more like someone from today that was put into that context, especially like her way of speaking and her movements. I don't know, feel very modern, and it, that kind of threw me off a little bit in the beginning. Towards the end, or like middle and end, not so much. But like that initial scene, it it was a moment of like, um, what's going on? It feels like two different ages are mixing together, and I don't really understand it. And seem dissonant. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd say I didn't, I didn't quite pick up on that, but you mention it. Hmm. 
And uh, like for me, they, I think I really I really liked uh, Daria Banu as Giles Corey. Um, so the, a lot of the, the makeup in this I thought was very good, because um, Daria Banu is well, she's a she's a female UBC student our age, and she's playing a Giles Corey's about what a seventy year old man maybe. 60-year-old man. Giles Corey is... Oh, him. Yes. That yeah. was very good. Nobody can testify. I haven't been to court. And that's... So, I, I confused him with John Proctor uh, last interview. And Giles Corey is my favorite character in The Crucible uh, when I read the play. Because th- he died. So, um, I am going to spoil this. Um, see the show. It's really good. Uh, but, spoiler. So, Giles Corey is killed. Uh, he's accused of complicity with witches and he's killed with a pretty horrible way um they basically put rocks on his chest this isn't on stage but the way they kill him he's described is they put rocks on his they put a would have put a board on his chest and then weighed it down with rocks or weights until it crushed him because what they're trying to do is get him to confess but he has he enters no plea which means his land can't be seized which is another theme um my friend matt he plays thomas putnam who's a sort of minor character. He shows up mostly at the start. But uh, Thomas Putnam is one of the more villainous figures. Like, he's a very wealthy man whose wealth possibly comes from basically fraud through his will. Like, the um, Giles points out that your father had a habit of will and land he didn't nearly own. And um, to the end, Giles alleges that it's a land grab by Putnam because Putnam is a friend with the reverend who instigates this the the pan the the panic about witchcraft what did you think of that element by the way sort of the no the the witchcraft element felt very okay okay about that um there's a lot of misogyny going on in that play and it's important and it's like it's important that it's portrayed that way and it made me feel so uncomfortable extremely uncomfortable because although i understand that's part of the world and i understand that it's important um, that it was part of the society and that is why things happened the way they did i also can't accept it i can't stay still and that's why i comment so much because i can't stay i can't watch it and be like are you serious is that the logic that you're using there is no logic to that um, are you talking? Are you talking about the Inquisition? Or are you talking about Proctor? Everyone, everyone in that play feels like I understand that is the mentality of the time. I just can't accept it. Yeah. Well, that was also I think the part that really hasn't does kind of have the most objection is with Proctor because like when he's really yelling about Abigail, the the epithet he uses the most is whore. A lot. He says it a lot, and that's the direct thing he's aiming at. Like, that's that's the tack he's taking. And Abigail is, at this point, committed a lot of fraud and caused a lot of people to die. And there's a pretty explicable point from his rage, but that does tell you how it's seen. And that does tell you, because Proctor, I, I don't think Proctor was a character supposed to complicate sympathy necessarily. At least in the original run. Maybe he was to Miller. But I highly doubt it was staged that way. Because... This is, The Crucible's an allegory. Somewhat, somewhat. It, it, it is based off actual historical events, which is disturbing in and of itself, but it's an allegory for McCarthyism. That's the context in which it was created, and that's the context in which it continues to exist. But it's, today it feels very modern, and it feels that it translates really well to yeah. the fake news 
yeah. uh, outburst. Yeah, and that's that tells you something. It really does. Because the Crucible's never really gone out of date. I think we might have touched on this in the interview, not a lot. But, like, the Crucible has had a lot of pull over a lot of time. Because people have not changed in that regard. There's always something that'll make people panic. Like, I mean, maybe in more prosperous times, more petty things. Like, gay panic was a thing in the 90s. Really? Really? That, that you need to have a lot you need to have a significant dearth of problems to be oh the homosexuals are indoctrinating our children that's more effort than that most people would tender <sighs> on tangent for me personally but it's, it's ridiculous to look back on it the 90s were such an innocent time they were it was bloody, I, 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 it's like when you listen to like some 41 or blink 182 or any other pop punk band with a number after their name and realize how innocent and complacent they were like, just right until 9-11, and then everything is serious. And then, you know, well... well. <laughs> God. <coughs> You'll excuse me, I, uh, I have a bit of a sore throat. It feels like someone tried to slice my throat, but then stopped halfway through. Yeah. Where were we, what were we talking about before we... Oh, yeah. Uh, the Crucible. Yeah, how modern it feels. Um, yeah, I feel that... It's really hasn't gone out of date. And the more I watch it, the more I was like, wow. Because everyone that is accused is given a choice. Confess to something that you didn't do and live. Or be honest and be true to yourself and keep your values and die. And sincerely, I'm a coward um, in that aspect. I would not. I would you know. say whatever. I, I want to live, you know? <laughs> like, I, I want to live. And for the people that matter... The people that actually matter to me, they will probably know the truth. But I understand someone that keeps their morals, and I respect that. I think that is so brave. And then we see today the same kind of purge trying, like Trump trying to go on this same idea where, no, this is fake news, that is fake news. And some journalists have had their reputations completely destroyed by that and some of sometimes they have reported correctly and that's the worst part that like they were right all along but because someone accused them or something and you also can't tell is the sad thing like a lot of it is we're not living in a good media climate right now we haven't been for a while like that's 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 not an issue i'm not i do blame the media for trump's election i i i i do blame a huge oversight not 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 the ones who liked him either everyone they gave him three mil they gave him how many how many millions of dollars in free publicity but this is i i, I don't want to go there i really don't like it's it's i you know I, we, we did this after the election uh we, we aired those grievances but with the crucible it's hard not to avoid it the thing about the crucible is though is that when even when the crucible was when the crucible was written and now it took something that was pretty unilaterally agreed to be wrong which trials not good and like for an american too like there's the context that this is they're talking about english law they're not talking they're talking about the puritans yes but that's a very clever decision miller made was that he took it back to a point where you can say the american experiment wasn't started yet so it's not a stain on the nation so it's an idea this does seem ridiculous and then by translating it to something that's applicable it translates pretty cleanly it makes that thing appear ridiculous and that thing mccarthyism was ridiculous 
The issue with the Crucible that really does, I think, make it retain relevancy is that despite that being pointed out, despite that correlation being drawn, it didn't change. No. It's a very influential play, but it didn't change the world. It's, it's like, you'd expect us to learn from our mistakes, but there is always a new issue, and the new issue always seems more important or less ridiculous than the last issue, which isn't necessarily true. I don't necessarily think that's true. I, I think, I think that if I look through the issues that come to me, I think about half of them are gibberish. There's a reason I don't work on the news show anymore. Put it that way. I, 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 I'm not very good at prioritizing these things. So, I think it's definitely a, a play to watch, just because it makes you think about a lot of things. But it wasn't easy for me. It wasn't a play that I sat through and enjoyed the, every moment. The sound design was pretty deliberately unsettling too. The sound. Okay, so it already starts with, like, the creepy little children laughter and a heartbeat. But the the girls' laughter is, like, little girls, right? Laughing. And it was, like, well, so well made that it's it doesn't come, like, all the sound from all, all around you. But, like, a laughter from the left, a laughter from the right. And then yeah. kind of... A, behind you and in front of you and it kind of like they're surrounding you but in different places and it was so creepy this sort of ghostly and like the 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 i love the set design i, I like the set design because the there's this the roof beams of this house and they kind of crumble in they bend in as the as society deteriorates in the play because a lot of people are dead or in prison by the end of it and they look like claws they look like clawed hands coming in the one thing i didn't like though uh, not regarding necessarily the play itself or like um the actors was the costuming um especially proctor's costume because by the end of it it seemed that he came out in jeans and a t-shirt and that really annoyed me as someone that um really pays attention to costumes and makeup not having a costume that fits the time period, that fits the rest of the play, really puts me off because it seems that you're like in a Back to the Future moment. I did think that was weird too. They did explain that in the talk back that they were aiming to make them the costumes seem slightly more universal, but that that's there's a lot of period costuming. I don't think that was. I think they kind of might have just half miled it there a little bit. Jeans and a t-shirt isn't universal. Jeans and a t-shirt is, like, very modern. It's very today, very uh, contemporary. Depending on where you are. You could probably wear it to a general lack of comment at any point between 1945 and now. Probably. Well, well yes, but then you remember that this place, like, 1600s. Set in the 16 <laughs> pre-American Revolution, so maybe not. <laughs> and the thing is, like, if everyone else had been in that style, okay, but it was just him, which kind of felt off. Fair enough. Good segue. You know what's another play that makes you think about things? <laughs> Mark Laren Young's Bar Mitzvah Boy. The more cheerful play about religion at the Pacific Theater. Actually, it has some pretty dark moments in it. But it's very good. I saw the world premiere of it, actually. And um, it, it's good. The, the, the plot of it is 
basically there is a lawyer uh, who has a he's, – he's in his 70s. He decides to get bar mitzvahed because his uh, – <clears throat> excuse me – his um, – his grandson is getting a bar mitzvah. Wait, he he didn't get a bar mitzvah when he was no the there, proper there, age. There's a great story for it. Oh, okay. But he told his daughter he did because his daughter is very religious. Okay. And uh, it's his is his relationship with his rabbi basically sort of coming to spirituality. His rabbi is Rabbi Michael. Uh, she's a she is like oh your dad wanted a boy. No, Michael means hand of God. No, Michael means your dad wanted a boy. And she comes from a family of rabbis. It's very interesting. There's a lot of – it's very dialogue heavy. It's just the two of them. It's very funny. It's – um, it, it is – and I, I, I know a little bit about Jewish theology. Not a lot. Um, but, like, enough to know – like, there, there were some interesting references in it. Like, there was uh, one where he, he looks for wedding photos of her. Like, he says, oh, you don't have any wedding photos on, on your desk. And he goes, yeah, my husband and I met a yeshiva. Uh, so a shiva is a funeral sort of thing where there you ca- there's no mirrors or photographs taken or covered to to give mind to the deceased. Basically, it's it, it was it was something I knew I knew about that from this episode of Frasier. I'm not uh, <laughs> uh, too aware of that, but it is interesting um, and it is it, it is just fun. It, it, it it's a funny play and it was enjoyable and it was it was actually very illustrative. I I liked it. It is just two people talking to each other. At the end of the day, so if it, it's not an effects extravaganza, it, it's Pacific. It, it, it's a small play with impressive themes. They, they're very good at that. They haven't let us down yet. So yeah, I, I'd recommend seeing it. It's going until April fourteenth. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty good recommendation. Is there anything else we've missed? We are running a little over time. There was one more thing. One more thing. Come on. Shout out. Uh, or- oh yeah, yeah, Chelsea Hotel. I could have made a segue with Leonard Cohen's Judaism, but okay, screw, I screwed the pooch there. Yeah, Chelsea Hotel is coming to the Fire Hall, and I highly recommend you see it. Chelsea Hotel, for those who don't know, is a jukebox musical uh, with the music of Leonard Cohen. May he rest in peace. Um, it is a – so I, I was I was raised on music Leonard Cohen. My dad loved the guy. He actually saw him live when he was still going. It's, it's running till April 21st, and uh, if you can get tickets, the Fire Hall's hosted it before – and it's uh, it, it really just is. I so I have I've never seen this, but hopefully we're gonna be able to turn that one around because if we can, I I, I would really like to talk about this because you know what he was he was one of our greatest cultural figures for more than half a century. I by the time he died, about half a century. So I figure, yeah, he deserves that. Rest in peace, Leonard. We we love you, and we'll see what we have to say about Chelsea Hotel next time around, right? Yep. I'm your host, Jake Clark. I'm Lua. And uh, cheers.